I think most Jews would argue that there's a real dearth of decent Hanukkah songs out there. Well, the Living Sisters, one of my favorite LA bands, made a lovely addition to the very tiny Hanukkah musical canon with their tune, Hanukkah. They'll be singing it live at the Kibitz Room at Cantor's Deli on December 13th at our Catskills Kibitz second night of Hanukkah live taping extravaganza. Also appearing will be Moshe Kasher, Michael Showalter, as well as my co-host Jessica Chaffin and me. Plus, we will set a world record involving pastrami. It's going to be amazing. So get your tickets now at thekibitzlive.eventbrite.com. That's thekibitzlive.eventbrite.com. We are almost sold out, so get your tickets fast. Now, on to our episode. Just a quick disclaimer before we begin, the views expressed on this podcast are solely of the guests and do not reflect the opinions of the podcast or its sponsors. Thanks. Let's try an experiment. Close your eyes. Now, in your mind, picture a Jew. What did you imagine? Was it a Hasid with a long beard, hat, and payas? I'm guessing that it probably was. Or maybe it was Woody Allen, but I'd actually put my money on the Hasid. That image of the Jew is really interesting. How did this small sect of Judaism that still wears clothes from 19th century Eastern Europe become what so many people around the world picture when they picture a Jew? Well, I'm Dan Crane. And I'm Jessica Chaffin. And this is The Kibbutz, the podcast about Jewish ideas and culture. This episode of The Kibbutz is about what we're calling the false lens of history. How our understanding of the past is curated by the choices of photographers, journalists, and historians. So, yeah, this kind of came out of a conversation you and I were having. You were telling me about uh, these photos of Roman Vishniak and and, and your friend Maya who put together this exhibition. And we sort of came up with this idea for this episode, but... Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to get more into it in our discussion with Maya, but it was this idea, it was a real eye-opener that most of the images that we look at are curated. And though that act in and of itself tells a story, and I found that really fascinating. I think we as Jews, um, particularly from the 20th century on, have one foot, a, a big part of our religion or our cultural identity is having one foot firmly planted in the past in order to prevent some sort of awful dystopian future, which may very well be happening now. Yeah, right now. Once again, let's laugh, Dan, while, yeah. we, while we can. I'll grab the burns. silver, you grab the diamonds. Yeah. Um, but, but truly, I think that there's been this prevailing idea that how we prevent a bleak future is by remembering how dark things got in the past. And so, to that end, it's always, Holocaust education has always been at the forefront for Jews of our age and Jews younger than us, I'm sure, too. Um, And so it was really interesting, this idea that maybe that was only half the story in terms of um, how we, the the images we identify with culturally, not meaning that this wasn't a real thing that was happening and happened, but just the people that we remember, how we think of our relatives, when in reality, I don't think my relatives were uber religious in that way and certainly did not um wear the vestments of people that were religious like that right and that's and so those are the kind of the the photos that we remember that we that you know we all saw when we were kids of of uh pre-war germany uh, pre-war europe um were of when we saw jews they were religious looking jews and it turns out uh, they didn't all dress like that yeah so, all right, well, let's dig in. So, we've got two great interviews on this episode. One's with Maya Benton, a curator at the International Center for Photography in New York. She's talking about the photos of Roman Vishniak. Another great Hanukkah present, her book. Oh, such a good one. It, I gave it to many people for Hanukkah. I know, you say yeah. it at the end of the interview. Yeah. <laughs> I'll say it again in case anybody wants to click a link on Amazon. No. And another with Yiddish super movie star, Eddie Portnoy. Oh, I mean scholar, Eddie Portnoy. Uh, he's going to be discussing what he calls the Jewish OJ trial of the 1870s. So take the Etch-A-Sketch that is your brain, give it a good shake, and prepare yourself for this mind-blowing episode of The, the Kibbutz. 
Maya Benton is a curator at the International Center of Photography. Her work archiving and curating the photographs of Roman Vishniak has been chronicled in many places, including the New York Times Magazine. Wow, fancy. And you're, she's a friend of yours. I yeah. didn't want to say it again, because I think I mentioned it in the well, interview but, several you know, you times. Can, you I? can't underemphasize friendship, okay. can you? And if you're not aware of the work of Roman Vishniak, he was a photographer who took the most widely recognized and most widely reproduced photographic record of Jewish life right before the Holocaust. I interviewed Maya this fall in New York. My name is Maya Benton, and I'm a curator at the International Center of Photography. So I organize exhibitions, write books, do research. Um, my area of expertise is photos of Jewish life in interwar Europe, Eastern Europe, Central Europe. But I have three shows currently traveling, so wide range of subject matter. Also stuff that isn't photography. I like to organize shows. Uh, art historian. Maya, I'm going to call you a friend. I mean, I'd be offended if you didn't. I'm very hurt. <laughs> I'm going to call you one of my favorite people. You have a beautiful brain. And in addition to having a beautiful brain, it is translated through the body of a Jewish domestic goddess. <laughs> so you're like the most fun friend. This is and already it, the best interview I've ever and done. And then it turns out that you have a killer brain inside of your jappy head. And it's wonderful. <laughs> I wish in an alternate universe that I had lived, I live your life where I'm an academic and I study all of these things that I find intensely fascinating. So this is what I want to talk about today. This is why we're here today. Besides the fact that I could sit here and talk to you for and the I rest you of my life. Salad. And she, it's very important to my, as well it should be that <laughs> she, also. that she, that people know that I was offered a snack, a deli <laughs> a meal if I had wanted it. And Boy, was she pushing the borscht, but no, that's no, the yeah. limits of my McJewry. I don't Barney do Barney Greengrass borscht, people. It's uh, very good. That she had, she gave me a beautiful appetizer plate, as they call it at, at Barney Greengrass, of a little whitefish salad, a little tuna fish salad, and a toasted bialy that was toasted to perfection, I'll tell you. you. I will also tell the listener that I had breakfast at the Russ and Daughters Cafe today, so now I've had enough Jewish food to last me for the rest of the year. But it was absolutely delicious and fabulous and thank you and when we're done with this we'll be rewarding ourselves with the babka muffin but the also point from is Barney also for Barney Greengrass but truly the reason we're here today is because I was as most people probably our age um, I was deeply fascinated by the Holocaust and Holocaust whatever you call the memorabilia art images everything surrounding the Holocaust and it's an odd thing but you you sort of develop this voracious appetite for these images because your mind, in my case anyway, your mind can't process the actual act of the thing. That the thing happened and that it happened over a sustained amount of time and of course the the ghastly number of people that were lost, etc. But that you're sort of, it's honestly, it's similar to watching like a great white shark swim through the water where you just say, I can't stop watching this thing, but I'm terrified of it but it's deeply compelling. Captivating. Yes, captivating. And so when I saw your show, I think I was aware of the work of Roman Vishniak, but your show was so compelling and so beautifully curated. And I think it's super exciting that the people of London are going to get to see this show in November. Is that right? November, 2018. Okay. It's going to London. So yeah. that'll be the venues, the uh, exhibition seventh venue. So you are the curator of his personal collection or his family's collection or? I'm the curator of the archive that we built at the International Center of Photography. And when you talk about his photographs, it's interesting. There are two different ways of looking at his photographs. There are about 300 of his images that were published or printed during his lifetime. It's a really small number. Yeah. But the archive includes 50,000 objects that were never before seen or published or printed or reproduced. And think about how many pictures that is. I mean, we mindlessly take pictures today, but the act of taking a picture at that time and then developing it and developing the film, et cetera, I mean, that is a mountain of work. And each frame of film, especially the Raleigh, he used two cameras, a Raleigh and a Leica, and the Raleigh film was incredibly expensive. And that film was paid for by Jewish social service organizations and nonprofits at a moment where money meant visas, meant life and survival. And it shows you how these... Jewish nonprofits were valuing the power of the photographic image to affect change and pull on heartstrings and affect policy because they were prioritizing hiring a photographer for each precious frame that was so expensive rather than food for soup kitchens, visas to get out. 
And it shows you the value that was placed on the, the propaganda value that was placed on his images in the late 30s. So who were they speaking to with those images? Were they speaking to uh, philanthropists that they were hoping would help refund the organization? Like who, were, who was his work? Not who was he speaking to, but who were the people that commissioned his work speaking to? So Roman Vishniak, I should just give a little yeah, background. Yeah, and who is Roman Vishniak? So Roman Vishniak was um, a Russian-born American photographer, born in 1897 in Pavlovsk, which was a small town outside St. Petersburg, and raised in Moscow. And he died in New York in 1990, at the age of 93. And when did he emigrate to the United States? In 1941. He arrived New Year's Day in 1941, Incredible. one of the last passages out from the port of Lisbon. But his work was between the First and Second World War. So when we talk about Vishniak, he was known for only 300 images, and all of those images were taken between 1935 and 1938. These iconic photos that document the most religious, the most um, kind of spiritual and authentic Ostudin or Eastern Jews, so that those images could be used to show potential donors and philanthropists in the West. But actually, when we gathered all of his negatives together for the first time and built this archive at ICP, we see that his work spans early engagements with modernism in Weimar Berlin in the 1920s to his pioneering work in photomicroscopy using magnification and polarized light to document microbiological organisms, uh, zoology, biology in the 60s and 70s. And so he had a career that spanned 60 years. And imagine if you worked for 60 years and had an incredible and wide-ranging career, but you were only known for four years of work. And even among that, a very small selection of images. And so one of the goals for this exhibition was to make the argument that he was a great modernist, that he was a far more versatile photographer than we'd previously known. And even his iconic photos of Jewish life in Eastern Europe could be should be seen in the context of commissioned social documentary photography. And so at what point, at what age and how is he hired by the, um, what was the Jewish Defense League? The, the JDC. JDC. The Joint. So he had Which been- Which stands for, JDC stands the for- The Jewish Joint Distribution Committee, or it's referred to often as the Joint or the JDC, okay. was and still is today the world's largest Jewish relief organization. In fact, they were uh, responsible for feeding my mom and the displaced persons camps after the war. All the food packages she ate in her first several years of life were provided by the Joint. So this was a real personal connection for me. Wow, that's fascinating. This is, this is sort of the thing that I want to get to about- this, the, the angle on this story, which is, you had this terrific quote, in the New York times, which I can read back to you. Uh, but where you said that basically looking at those 300 images of, of Soviet, of, uh, Eastern Jews would be the equivalent of somebody came to New York and only took pictures of homeless people. And then they yeah. said, Oh, this was New York. Right. And so you can, par you, I've paraphrased, you can say well, what you really want to say, what but this is the thing I'm really interested in is, I guess you would call it sort of this false lens of history, which is the idea that we manipulated what many Jews think of as what Jewish society and life was like before the war and what we lost was super cleverly, I don't want to say manipulated, I'll say highlighted by this organization in order to serve a purpose. And I'm in no way saying it was an untruth. I'm just saying it's fascinating the story we tell ourselves and how that, how anti-Semitism can be, be used to your own advantage in a way. Well, what he was doing was part of a broader context of commissioned social doc photography from the 30s. And there's an American corollary. So when you think of the Dust Bowl photos, yes, you know, of course. Dorothea Lange's migrant mother, did everyone in America look like that in the 30s? Were they sleeping in shanty towns and shacks? No, of course not. But if there was a natural disaster and, you know, America disappeared and we said, well, this is what Americans looked like in the 1930s. That's what Jews have done. So Vishniak had been a kind of experimental modernist street photographer, very self-taught. And then with the rise of the Nazis, he took to the streets with his camera in Berlin in 1933 to document this ominous shift he saw. And as a Jew, you couldn't just go on the streets and take photos of Nazi banners and swastikas. And so he used his daughter as a prop. So that if a Nazi stopped him and said, what are you doing? He would say, well, I'm just taking a picture of my daughter. And so he would pose her in front of Nazi phrenology shops and banners and flags. And most of this work was never published or printed before we did the show and digitized. Now 10,000 negatives are all online and available. He was doing that. It's but incredible by, that that work still exists. 
But by 1935, and survived the war. I mean, it's it's amazing that his negatives survived, and they took a really circuitous route. He gave them to a friend of his who couriered them through Cuba. They got held up in customs. They were given back to him in America in, the, in 1943. So even the survival of his negatives was a it's astonishing, s- astonishing, yeah. and um, unlikely. I mean, the journey that it went through that they survived. But he was working to document the rise of Nazi power as a, as a passion project. His he was compelled to do this, and he started documenting Jewish middle class soup kitchens, Jewish orphanages, Jewish schools as Jews were excluded from civic life, including his own family, even a very wealthy, educated family, the, they had to create ancillary Jewish institutions, Jewish soup kitchens that had been originally for poor um, Eastern European emigres was now serving middle-class Germans. And so he was documenting um, Jewish relief efforts and community organizations in Berlin and uh, nonprofit uh, philanthropists and board members noticed this work because it was reproduced in newsletters and magazines. I think Salman Shakin, who is the founder of the famous Salman Depart- uh, Sh- the Shakin department store. Which was where? It was in Berlin, but there were, I mean, there were a bunch of them. Okay. Um, and he was, he kind of invented the modern department store and used Eric Mendelssohn, the Bauhaus architect to design this flagship department store. And Salman Shakin was on the board of a bunch of Jewish organizations, including the joint. And so I think that he became familiar with Vishniak's photographs of the German Jewish, you know, relief organizations and hired him to go East in 1935. And that's where we get to the the photographs that you're talking about. He was working in Berlin and it's the 300 and it's an important distinction because this wasn't someone who was a native son of the community. He was documenting. This was a wealthy, educated, assimilated Russian Jew living a cosmopolitan life in Berlin who is sent to Eastern Europe to take pictures of the poorest, most destitute, most authentic Ostiudin or Eastern Jews. So those images could be used to show donors and philanthropists in New York, in Boston, in Chicago, in London, in Paris to raise money for the plight of this community, because for, for the, the poorest among them. Because after World War I, there were 2 million dislocated, destitute Eastern Jews. So the joint was established to assist, to provide assistance to that community, relief efforts, soup kitchens, free loan organizations. And by the 30s, they were innovating with photography, reasoning accurately that by including photographs of the people who they were trying to help, that would be much more effective in their annual campaigns, in their fundraising drives. And so they sent Vishniak East. And from 1935 to 1938, he wound up creating the most extensive photographic record by a single photographer of Jewish life in Eastern Europe. Now, no one, least of all Vishniak, no one could have anticipated that that world would be annihilated shortly after he took this extensive photographic record. He was hired to take photographs to document poor people so that they could be used to raise money. Um, We have a rare example of how his photographs were used at the time that they were commissioned. And and this was a a find that a a friend of mine, Lara Rabinovich, who writes about food in LA, she was doing research in the YIVO archives about Romanian cookbooks and found a piece of correspondence. It's a lot of sour cream. There's a lot of sour cream. And and just luck that she stumbled upon this in the YIVO archives, letterhead written by this Romanian guy on annual Evo is the Yiddish, Yiddish Institute. Institute for Scientific yes. Research, where our dear friend Eddie Portnoy is now yes. the head researcher and you know man about Evo. So we found this letterhead and it reproduced a photograph by Vishniak that was used literally as the face of their annual campaign. So we understand how these images were used at the time that they were commissioned. After the war, when that community, when the communities of Eastern and Central Europe had been annihilated, Vishniak then claimed that they were the product of a self-imposed assignment. He claimed that he had premonitions of the Holocaust, Oh boy! that he saw the writing on the wall, that he knew what was to come. And so all that was left for, was for him to preserve the faces to the point where he was asked by Martin Bookspan on NBC radio, were you sent on assignment? And he said, no, I was sent by God and that assignment I followed. Oh boy. Now, I say this not to detract from his legacy, but actually, he created this um, fictitious autobiography and savior quest narrative around the photographs that they were the product of, you know, a self imposed assignment to document the faces of a community who, uh, that he knew would, would vanish. But the real story is actually so much more compelling and interesting because he was sent to document the poorest Jews so that those images could be used. 
um, to raise money and relief, provide relief. And then that became the final record. And that's where we get to the quote that you mentioned, that imagine I said to you, Jessica, let's go raise money for homeless people in New York. And we hired Jillian Laub, a great photographer. And we went with her and we interviewed homeless families and we had her take photos of you know, the, the most poignant pathos filled portraits of children and mothers in homeless shelters. And we told their stories with photographs. And then there was a, you know, hurricane, a natural disaster, and New York fell into the ocean. And 50 years from now, people said, found these photographs and said, this is what all New Yorkers looked like. That's what we have done. It's not that they're not accurate. They accurately represent that there was a lot of poverty, but it's only a small part. There was What was cut out of the record was secular middle-class life, women. And also when you tell, when you told Vishniak, when they told Vishniak, go take pictures of um, Jewish life, he focused on religious Jewish men because men were marked as Jews by the way that they dressed. Jewish women and Gentile women looked pretty much the same. So that's really interesting to me. So none of these women were wearing shadels and that kind of thing? Some were. Some of the very ultra-Orthodox, but most women in Eastern Europe were covering their hair, wearing kerchiefs and other coverings, you know, or shawl. And Gentile women and Jewish women were pretty indistinguishable. So so what you've just said about about employing the image of the religious Jewish male, and specifically this sort of agrarian pastoral, I'll say it, dirty in a lot of cases, uh, like f- sort of filthy looking. I mean, this was this was the reality of life, whether you were Jewish or not Jewish at that time. But in a lot of ways, this these images, and I know we're talking about a tiny sliver of a life, like meaning a- um, And only the ones that were published because the unpublished yes. work shows, you know, even in- it, there was But a, it was a job. It was an assignment. It was an assignment. And they took from that, it culled from that assignment, the, the, the images poorest, that they wanted to The most employ. destitute, the most authentic, the ones that- But yeah. isn't it interesting that Jews and anti-Semites employed the same yes, images- absolutely. To different purposes. The most other. And it's always been fascinating to me that- the images that were published after he came to America were the ones that I think American Jews could least identify with. They were the old Orthodox men with the beards, the young boys in the yeshivas, not the women in these beautiful dresses that they made themselves clutching each other. Um, And I think that there was a memorialization and a kind of nostalgia and a romanticism that created an other, what was lost. Um, But it shows you... We have this one photograph of this woman and she's wearing a skirt to her knee and her blouse is slightly unbuttoned and her Sleeves are rolled up. And on the back, it reads Satul Mare, which is the seat of the Satmar Hasidim, the most insular, closed Satmar, um, ultra-Orthodox sect. If someone was dressed like that, walking through the Satmar area of Borough Park or Meisharim in Israel today, people would be throwing stones at her. And this photograph shows you that they're recreating today a fantasy of a world that never existed. And Vishniak's photographs were a tool in that. But part of my goal in getting all 10,000 negatives up and online is to show that the reality is much more diverse. And not only diverse, but much more cosmopolitan. People often refer to Vishniak as a ghetto photographer. Not true, because he left before the ghettos were established. Also, shtetl photographer. And only about 5% of his photos from Eastern Europe were taken in what would be considered a shtetl. He was taking pictures of basement dwellings in Warsaw. He was taking photos in, you know, Lodge, which was like the Pittsburgh of Eastern Europe. I mean, Mm -hmm. these were industrial cosmopolitan centers. He was taking pictures of Jewish urban poverty. And I think that those images and the narratives around them are much more relatable to contemporary Jews than the pictures of old bearded men in Galician shtetls in these mountain towns. I mean, and I think that those are really important and poignant records as well. So I'm not discounting that. But what was removed from the iconic, the record of his iconic images was a secular middle-class life. It was his modernist eye. I mean, his, his best photos were never the ones that were published and right. the ones he that was... argue for him being one of the great photographers of the 20th century. But also interestingly, they expunged, they were commissioned for a purpose but by focusing on this one aspect of Jewish life, they essentially expunged people that were living his Jewish life from the record. Right. Meaning, and not meaning a modern, educated, well-off, engaged, the people probably who arguably felt the most betrayed by Germany, the people who felt like they were part of 
the German, I mean, that's a and giant he, statement, but what I'm saying is he did that take there were a lot photos. of Jews that were part of the fabric of German life and didn't know to go when it was time to go because it wasn't as clear to them. First of all, we don't have to get into who knew when to go and who didn't know to go when to go. But what I'm saying is that record of that kind of, and, and you see sort of a glimpse of that kind of thing in Schindler's List and those kind mm-hmm. of movies, but that sort of uh, upper middle class Jewish existence was very real and very uh, integrated and assimilated. Assimilated. Mm. Thank you. But that there was an upper middle class, uh, an entire upper upper middle class Jewish community that was assimilated and very much part of the fabric of all. I mean, in many ways, going back to this sort of legacy of how Vishniak's parents lived and were uh, exceptions, shall we say? Yeah, and in fact, we even found over forty people who um, are survivors who were subjects in Vishniak's photographs, and we interviewed them. And he told stories about taking his photos with a hidden camera, which we know he didn't. There was a lot of mythology around his photos, and one of the people we interviewed said he was a child at the time, and Vishniak photographed his father, who was a tailor in a small town and he said that Vishniak came and he remembered him lining up the schnorrers or the beggars and so this young boy who was the son of a very poor tailor had a memory of the photographer coming into town and lining up gathering the schnorrers the beggars and that that became the photographic record of the Jewish community of that town fascinating and so what we have done in kind of creating a collective memory through his photographs because they're so iconic is based on a documentary assignment to depict poverty and so my goal isn't to detract from his legacy by correcting this narrative but rather his photographs belong in this esteemed canon of social doc photography that the same year that dorothea lang took migrant mother Vishniak was sent east by the world's largest Jewish philanthropy to document the faces of Jewish poverty so that those images could be used to raise money. And he belongs in this canon. And also, he needs to be understood as a much more avant-garde and experimental and versatile photographer than had previously been known because the photos he took from Eastern Europe were an intentional style. But at the same time, he was documenting um, Dutch Zionist agrarian training camps where his photographs look like Alexander Rodchenko's Russian constructivist masterpieces. He's taking these kind of um, compositionally uh, avant-garde, Weimar-influenced photos of uh, Berlin life that look like a Fritz Long still. And no one had seen that work and understood that, I hope, arguing by looking at this larger canon, that here was one of the great 20th century photographers, not just a Jewish photographer, but a photographer of Jewish life, but really one of the greatest photographers of the 20th century. Well, you're saying you want to recontextualize him as an artist, which is very interesting, but I'm really curious about recontextualizing that work as part of the social milieu of Judaism at that time. And I'm also really curious about the legacy of that, which is... Do we as Jews tell ourselves, we as people, but in this context, we as Jews tell ourselves stories and are, for instance, women today taking, you know, dressing and covering themselves, et cetera, et cetera, because they think that they are hearkening back to a nostalgic life that perhaps never existed or existed in a teeny tiny way. And it isn't interesting, isn't it interesting how these narratives grow larger and larger and serve certain purposes and that we we as Jews used the same tools on ourselves that were used against us in order to drive a very different point home at the time. Absolutely. I think the evolution of the reception of his work is its own kind of Jewish history within it. Just in the 10 years from 1935 when he was first commissioned to 1947, when the photos were appeared in the first photographic album in America after the war and after the horrors of the war had become evident. If you look at that, just that 10 year um, time frame and how pliable his photos are and how rapidly the meaning can change. So from 35 to 38, they were the product of a documentary assignment to depict poverty, to raise money. When his negatives were returned to him, after he had settled in America in 43, he mounted shows at Evo and at the um, Columbia Teachers College and at the New School of Social Research in New York. And he was desperately trying to show these photographs. He even invited Eleanor Roosevelt. He corresponded with FDR and said, please come to these exhibitions. These are my people. They are dying. He was arguing 
for his photographs to be used as tools to promote interventionism, to try to draw attention to the plight of the communities that were being murdered. And well, there's only, a, oh, sorry, sorry, keep going. Keep and going. only two years later, they, they were um, published by Shock and Press as an album that was about the honoring the remnant of a vanished world. Well, but I would bet you, I don't know for sure, and you probably do, but I would bet you but that by the time we got to Shock and Press in 1945, that that, which you're saying 45 is- 47 is when it was published. Sorry, 47, that we're talking about dealing with the refugee crisis at that point, when the rest of the world had, it was- was very behind resettling refugees and then realized what a pain in the ass they were and they didn't want to deal with it. And that I would bet you that shock and press at that time was using those images as propaganda in order to reclaim and again, raise money again and to resettle people that had nowhere to go. Well, he was actually sent back in 1947. And this is something we really only discovered when we started to mine the archives. He was sent back in 1947 to photograph Jewish refugees and displaced people, and including the displaced persons camp where my own mother lived. I was going to say, any pictures of your family in there? No. You but didn't she, find one. I bet you I thought, said, my, you would. My mother went through with a loop and looked at the contact sheets, and she said some things looked familiar, but she lived there you know, from the age of one to four. So, you yeah. know, um, and also not the best of times, probably wasn't really clear memories um but he went back to document the refugee crisis and the joint the jdc tried to again commission him to take photographs that could be used to publicize the need of these refugees the refugee communities but the photographs from 47 the ones that were selected this kind of tendency to choose the most other the orthodox bearded man the young boy in the orthodox yeshiva not the young beautiful women there was only one the first book that was published called polish jews in 1947 had 31 images and only one was of a woman and it was an old woman in a babushka and it always seemed so strange to me why these images to memorialize that world because american jewry was trying to reconcile the horrors of the Holocaust and what had been destroyed and his iconic images. And by then they were already becoming icons represented the most romantic, nostalgic version. And it also venerated the spirituality of that community. Vishniak said, you know, they, um, all these men were wise. They were all spiritual. They were all good. They all studied Torah all day. Well, of course, no one is all good and all wise and all spiritual. And everyone was a genius and everyone um, devoted themselves to God. Now, that was true, certainly for some people, but it I was could, a mythologizing. It, it makes of, sense, yes. right? That everyone's annihilated and you have to venerate the spirituality and the authenticity and the purity of that vanished world. And so to, to depict Orthodox Jewish men involved in prayer is its own Kaddish in a way. I mean, I hadn't thought about it like that, but it's its own memorialization and the subject matter that he chose. But I think that we see the echo and the legacy of that in the way that Orthodox communities live their lives today and in specifically how American Jewry romanticizes the ideal, uh, the ideal of the Israeli experience and how you get funding for Israel. It's interesting that it was like first to get people out, then to get people resettled. And then if we draw, I think, a sort of unbroken chain or a line from Vishniak to now, it's the romanticization and sometimes bastardization of the Jewish experience in Israel, I would say. Well, certainly in these ultra-Orthodox enclaves like yes. Maya Sharim, but that is not Israel. It's not Israel. Yes, and and but I it's think what people think of as Israel, and in many yeah. ways, it's working. Uh, it's a double-edged sword again, which is the world in many ways equates Israel and anti-Semitism. There's obviously like we don't have to get into a charged discussion about Israel and their politics, but the experience of being in Israel as a secular Jew uh, is incredibly different than the story that is being sold to more extreme versions of Judaism. Yeah, and I think that people could be served by looking at the Vishniak archive and looking at these 10,000 negatives to understand that there's a much larger picture. Here. There's a larger picture and that there, they have no closer and claim to authenticity. That there's an inclusiveness to his work that w was, that we're t not to, to borrow a term from photography, but that looking at those 300 pictures is looking through a tiny aperture. And if you open the aperture, you see all of Jewish life at that, at that time. There's one photograph that it's not a great image, but I 
I included it in the exhibition nonetheless. Um, and I tried to only include his images that really highlighted what a masterful photographer he was. But there was one image I had to print from the negative. It had never been printed before. And it's not a great photo, but it shows um, a man, an older man, probably in his 60s or 70s, and a young, beautiful woman in her 20s. And they're both in a cafe or a bar. And there's a kind of zinc um, countertop. And the orthodox bearded man in the hat with the white beard and the payout is in focus. And a woman with her sleeves rolled up and lipstick and a Noya Frau kind of bob to her hair is leaning on the counter and she's out of focus. The photograph was never published, but if it had been, that orthodox man would have been cropped and that's what we would have seen. And this beautiful woman leaning on a cafe. And by the way, they're sitting together, right? They're not, they, they might not have been, um, but that gone a together, but that's were, a truer picture of life at the time. Absolutely. And so when I, um, I think that a lot of Jews, especially younger Jews who are not as familiar with Jewish history, see the ultra Orthodox communities in Mayashrimba Park as a more authentic representation that they're living and not truly Jewish life. I find that incredibly frustrating because that is a fantasy of a recreation of a kind of 17th century folk tradition. And Vishniak's photographs can, can prove that. Yeah, it's Epcot Center. It is. And I mean, there is an aspect of that that is real. I mean, this is how some Jews choose to live. Yes, but it's like being Amish. Okay, I have to wrap it up, but I have what, what I want you to just give me. It's so like, brief. I could talk to you for hours. I know. It's I so just, brief. I'm curious why you think Vishniak chose to repaint why Vishniak chose to mythologize himself in the post-war period and and to uh, give his to to create his own narrative mm-hmm. about his work and why he did it. Why do you think he made that choice? Um, there are a couple different answers. My friend Olga is a professor uh, is a professor of of um, performance studies in Russian Jewish history, and she had an interesting take, which was that. We talked Olga about Gershenson. Olga Gershenson. She had a, an interesting and I thought very charitable and probably accurate take, which is that it was part of the condition of these Jews who were given exemptions to live and work outside the pale of settlement that required a fictitious approach to autobiographical narrative. There was where you was born, where you were born, and where you were really born. When you were born, and when you were really born. What you do, but what you really do, because people were harboring. Um, Jews from the pale who would they would call cousins and they would give a fake papers to you know there was it required um, a self mythologizing and a flexible attitude towards biography so I think that that is fair and right also he was responding to what people wanted so if I think um, if someone had said to him in the sixties oh this these photographs that are avant-garde and represent the best impulses of modernism in Weimar Berlin are your best work. And we would love to print these and do a show. He would be thrilled with the attention and would be happy he to show that work. He would have said that he was that person. Yeah. I think he, he wanted... He followed the narrative of what he was most famous for. And he also... But it's interesting that he cut out the joint. I'm curious about that. Yeah. That's a separate story. I think um, the joint... Well... Do you think he felt he never, re- never received the acclaimed he deserved the acclaim rather that he deserved for the work that he did and the artistry of that work. The joint is Do you think com- he resented that it was a, um, it was a uh, transactional relationship and that he didn't deserve, he wanted to make sure he received the credit as an artist. The joint is a really complicated story. I've had my own simmis with the joint okay, over the but years. We're not going to get into your simmis um, with I the think, joint. We might it, need them at some but point. But it did, um, it highlighted something. He had a lot of fights with the joint. And I think when he came to America, he later claimed he was a doctor when he hadn't been. I think he was a scrappy immigrant creating a story to survive and to rebuild his life like immigrants do, right? He was um, rebuilding his life and establishing a portrait studio on the Upper West Side, taking pictures of Einstein and Chagall and Molly Picone and these German and Russian Jewish emigres so that he could use those images to promote his portrait studio. He was also working for Jewish foundations and he was reestablishing himself as a science photographer and a scholar and a researcher. And he was trying to make ends meet. And um, he was leaning in, he was leaning in. And I think that he was thrilled when people were honoring the significance of his work. And he felt a real kinship and a connection to the communities he documented. And that wasn't just bombast. You know, he spent from 35 to 38 traveling with people who showed him their communities and most of them perished. 
And of course, because he was photographing the poorest Jews, that was the product of the assignment, most of those people were most likely to perish. 95% probably of the communities he focused his lens on perished. And to spend three years traveling among people and photographing them and they die, I think that the mythology around it was his own form of veneration. And And a little bit of artistic license. And in addition to a kind of self-aggrandizement that was his own personality, but there was a lot of stuff at play. And and who's to say how one survives the war? Right. Fascinating. Maya Benton. I could talk to you forever. Thanks for the tuna and the whitefish salad. (laughs) And the Bialy toasted to perfection. It was toasted to perfection. Now we're going to have a babka muffin. Let's have a babka muffin. I'm sorry. Um, Thank you so much for your time. I'm so excited to see the show again. And I'm delighted that it's still touring and I hope it continues to tour. And I think it's, I just think it's remarkable. And Thank I think it's, you. And don't forget, let's not forget about the book. Where's the book available? Amazon. The book of the show. Roman Vishniak Rediscovered. It's on Amazon. And the publisher? Prestel. It makes, I hate to tell you, a fabulous Hanukkah gift. And I gave several out. When it, the year Thank that it came you. out, I gave several out as my holiday gifts. It's a beautiful coffee table book. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was good. that was a great interview, Jess. I'm very thank you, I think you Dan. Really I was waiting for you to say something. Yeah, I think like it was that. great, and it was fascinating. And you have such a rapport with her; it's as if you've known each other for years. I have to say, I was very happy to talk to her about that, and I do I do find it endlessly fascinating. And now our conversation with Eddie Portnoy, the author of the book Bad Rabbi and other strange but true stories from the Yiddish press. You might remember Eddie from our Catskills episode. He's going to tell us the incredible story of a murder in New York in 1875 that was basically the O.J. Simpson case of its time, involving a devout Jew named Pesach Rubinstein. Pesach Rubinstein. What uh, a name. I know. He was born to be a star yeah. with a name like Pesach Rubinstein. That's a real star. Eddie's book, which uh, just came out in October, Bad Rabbi, you should check it out. It's, uh, it's fascinating. I should mention this was a rare case where Jess and I interviewed him together. It was fun. We started by talking about the... I liked it. uh, No, it was fun. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Uh, We started by talking about the Roman Vishniak exhibit. Uh, Actually, Roman Vishniak's first exhibit was at Evo in 1944. The world's greatest Yiddish Institute, (laughs) according to Eddie Portnoy. (laughs) Uh, Probably true. If you were to look at the catalog and if you were to see my article, one of the things I write about is that um, this phenomenon of uh, creating this image of Eastern European Jews uh, was developed by the newspaper, the Forwarts, this Yiddish newspaper, which had, uh, beginning in the early 1920s, a, um, a huge photo section. And they hired photographers in Poland and instructed them to send them pictures of Jewy looking Jews. It's the idea that they're, they're, they're sort of, you know, inventing a type of nostalgia. We want to kind of talk about that. And, and it sounds to me like Dan rightfully thinks your book falls into that same category, which is we don't ever talk about the psychopath. We don't ever talk about our aberrations uh, the way that that doesn't seem like a thing that people put together. Right, like well, Jews know, and bad behavior, you know that kind of bad behavior, or or uh, psychological aberration, or you know, despite the fact that it seems that Jack the Ripper was a right. Polish Jewish immigrant, or you know, these are not the stories we like to tell, right? For I mean, obvious you know, reasons, you know, the, the thing, the things we don't talk about, um, you know, are can often be really interesting and really important, uh, you know, f- to history. But we, you know, the reasons that, that, you know, Jews don't talk about these things is it's a way to, you know, kind of elevate our pedigrees and make ourselves more palatable in the mirror of history. Uh, And, you know, obviously for obvious- We need all the help we can get, Eddie. Well, (laughs) I I will say my heart always drops into my stomach. Whenever I he- whenever I'm reading and I'm a news junkie and you know blah 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 like everybody I read everything and and metabolize it but my heart always drops into my stomach when a Jewish person behaves badly. Right, but right. Yeah, you know, we the- all think it reflects badly on us, but uh, I mean the reality is it, it shouldn't reflect on us at all. But you know, invariably, you but know, we're such like- a small I mean, I think, we're I think such so- a small community. Right, I think so. so it's something sort of like, like oh. something like Bernie Madoff. 
you know, is much more mm-hmm. apt to reflect on, on. Right. Whereas Madoff plays into a stereotype. Right. Yeah. Where Madoff fits right into it. Like he, you know, he fits yeah. the mold. Well, so tell us about this. The, there's a story, I guess, from your Bad Jews book. Yeah, let's talk about Jew on Jew crime. Jew on Jew crime. Um, this guy, uh, <laughs> this guy Pesach Rubenstein. Which, Rubenstein. Oh, I wish my name was Pesach Rubenstein. <laughs> you know, the, it's, 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 very, it's very funny that you say that because in the wake of, of uh, the, the trial, uh, there was a popular song named My Name is Pesach Rubenstein. Um, really? Yeah, yeah, that people would go around singing. Um what was the chorus? Was he born on Pesach? That's my first question. I don't think no. Pesach was uh, actually you know a pretty common Jewish man's name uh, or male up until name. this point. Mm-hmm. No, no. It's it, well. I mean, it's it's yeah. It's not so popular anymore, but uh, it, it used to be. I had an uncle Pesach. Wow. Come to the Evo Institute, Dan, and you'll uh, you'll meet a few Pesachs. <laughs> exactly. That's right. The That's world's right. foremost institute on Yiddish learning and archives. Indeed. So, what um, was the? What's give us the give us the lowdown on Pesach Rubenstein? So, so Steen or Stein? Can we yes, clear that up now? Wait, can you what? Is he Rubenstein or Rubenstein? Um, it's well in you know in Yiddish it would have been it would be it would have been Rubenstein. Um, Rubenstein. How did he pronounce it? Uh, probably Rubenstein. I don't know. It's not really. It's not really clear because he's dead, and I can't. Uh, I can't access. Uh, I can't access yeah. him. He, uh, you know, he fits <laughs> right into this idea of um, of sort of hiding ugly episodes in Jewish history. So I came across this person because when I was in graduate school, uh, someone came to me from the rare book room at the Jewish Theological Seminary with an old newspaper. Uh, that was written in Yiddish, uh, and which had all kinds of uh, images, some of which were of this Pesach Rubenstein character. And it was brought to me, uh, the librarian said, can you date this? It has no date on it. We don't know what it is. So I read the text, and it was all about this person, Pesach Rubenstein, who murdered this woman, Sarah Alexander, who was both his lover and his cousin, uh, he murdered her because he discovered she had gotten pregnant and uh, his wife was on her way over from Poland. Uh, so he, you know, in order to solve this problem that he had, he, he decided to kill her. So, so, I, so I, re- I read the story in this old newspaper and I begin looking at historical texts and I'm finding very little. And I go and look in newspaper indexes and find that it, this story is written about in virtually every newspaper in the United States. It was a huge, huge story. And I begin checking indexes of Jewish history books, and I'm finding virtually nothing. In fact, I, I found mention of the story in, and obviously I didn't look at every single book, but I looked at dozens of them, and I found it in only uh, four uh, history books. And there, there was only usually a sentence or two about it, at most, you know, a, a page. And it struck me that this that there was a such incredible disconnect because it was in, in American newspapers for um, about a month and a half or two in March 1876. Uh, this was an enormous story, and it's written in. You can find uh, articles about it in everything from the New York Times to the Brooklyn Daily Eagle to uh, far-flung rural newspapers like the Idaho Avalanche. You know, you, the, the story was everywhere, and it struck me that Jewish historians seem to hide the story, uh, and I found that remarkable uh, because you know the job of a historian is to you know bring out every important uh, issue and aspect and event in in you know whatever life of the people you're studying is, uh, unless it's so, bad for the Jews. Right. Well, that's the point. It's, um, you know, this is, this was clearly bad for the Jews. Uh, so, so it was generally avoided. I was just amazed by this and I began to research the story and I, you know, wound up writing an article about it in Guilt and Pleasure, which, uh, is the long lost and great, um, magazine of reboot. And, uh, I wound up publishing an academic article about it as well. Uh, but it was this really remarkable story about this Jewish immigrant who had been in the country uh, for about three or four years uh, with his uh, parents and family, uh, lived on the Lower East Side. And it's also a time during the, you know, it's before this large 
uh, mass emigration from Eastern Europe, uh, which began in the 1880s. Uh, this, this takes place in 1875 and 1876. So it precedes this, and um, it's not a period that uh, is heavily uh, considered in, in Jewish historiography. And so the Rubenstein case is really the, the first major interface between uh, Jews and American media. Uh, you know, this guy's name and sometimes picture was, uh, was you know, splashed across every newspaper in, in the country. This uh, Pesach Rubenstein uh, was a uh, peddler, uh, mostly sold jewelry. He uh, came down with uh, consumption and uh, possibly tuberculosis, and he had to stay at home, and his... Uh, a, a, woman who was his second or third cousin was hired to care for him. Her name was Sarah Alexander. And uh, while he was in her care, they had an affair. Um, he, like I said, was had was married. His wife was in Poland and she was uh, on her way over. Um, uh, when he found out she was pregnant, he took her uh, to a field in East New York, uh, which is in Brooklyn, and murdered her there. Uh, someone found this body in a field in East New York, and uh, they brought it to the attention of the, of the Brooklyn police. The police brought it to the morgue. Uh, they had no idea who it was. Uh, they put an advertisement in the newspaper saying that uh, a body was found in the field of East New York. They described the clothing that the, that the person was wearing, and they asked people to come by and try, to, try and identify it. No one was able to identify it. At the same time, uh, the Rubenstein family uh, realized that, that uh, Sarah Alexander had disappeared. And so uh, they arranged for her brother to put an, an ad in a newspaper, uh, a missing persons ad, uh, in order to find her. And they described her and what she was wearing. And uh, Pesach Rubenstein's father uh, happened to be reading the paper and realized that the missing person uh, what it, that was described was described in exactly the same way as the woman who had been murdered, had found murdered in East New York. Uh, so he called the police, you know, thinking that it was Sarah Alexander. And the police, because she worked in the family's home, the police came and interviewed everyone in the home. And they saw that Pesach uh, reacted in a very strange way. So they asked him, if he would come and identify the body. And he refused and began to go into hysterics. And they realized that, you know, he may have something to do with this. So they uh, forced him to go to Brooklyn with them and uh, identify the body, body in the morgue. He flipped out there and they arrested him. Uh, and then they began to build a case, uh, you know, based mainly on circumstantial evidence against him. And it was successful. He was found guilty, and uh, he was sentenced to sentenced to death. Uh, although while he was in prison, he starved himself to death, and was eventually not executed. Um, what and, a coward! <laughs> right? Didn't he wanna... just sound, he just sounds like a real poor choice for a partner? I'll say that <laughs> he was he was physically weak to begin with. He yeah. caught consumption. He was nursed back to health by a young cousin who he took advantage of, and then he couldn't handle the manly responsibility of the of, of the act, murders her, and then he takes to hysterics, and in it, addition to that, then he starves himself to death. Yeah. The real winner in this story is, is Sarah his wife. Alexander, or no. his wife, <laughs> his wife from <laughs> Poland, who didn't have to deal with him. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, you know let, he, let's say he was a troubled young man. Yeah. I'd say he was a, a man of flawed character and uh, weak constitution. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 so probably what, probably <laughs> accurate. Um, but what, <laughs> what 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 happened with this? What, what's interesting about this is that it was such a huge case, and um, you know, for instance, there's this nineteenth uh, century publishing phenomenon called murder pamphlets uh, for big murder trials. Uh, people would publish something called a murder pamphlet, and it was. Um, you know, a small, usually 16-page pamphlet uh, that describes the case uh, and usually ha is illustrated. And it was just a, like a common form of literature. You know, people love reading about murders. Um, you know, now they like watching, you know, watching them on TV. Yeah, um, or true crime, basically. Yeah. Right, true exactly, crime. right, right. That's basically what it is. And so hundreds of these were published during the 19th century. And usually 
um, you know, for, you know, murder, you know, your, your average murder case, if you, if you, it was a big case, if you, if you wound up with a murder pamphlet, um, and usually you had one pamphlet per case, maybe two, but for the Pesach Rubenstein case, there were four murder pamphlets published. And, um, after the, uh, in, after the trial, someone published the entire trial transcript as a book. So it was a really, really very popular case. Uh, were they ever it, you know, published, were the pamphlets ever published in Yiddish or were they only published in English? Well, you know, the Yiddish newspapers at the time um, published about it. Uh, you know, there isn't a lot extant, but, um, you know, this, this newspaper that I mentioned, the entire issue is about the case. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's only a four-page newspaper, but all, you know, the entire newspaper is dedicated to, uh, to the Pesach Rubenstein trial. The Pesach um, Rubenstein special edition. Yeah, it, it's, it's true. And, um, you know, in... It was one of the first times that um, a significant amount of anti-Semitism resulted because of uh, of something like this. Bad, bad for, for the, the Jews. Jews, right? Bad, right? Of course. So, Verdict: so, Bad for the Jews. <laughs> yeah. The difference with the Pesach Rubenstein case was that Rubenstein was was uh, very very religious, uh, and he looked like a traditional Jew. He you know wore long coat and hat and beard and payas. Um, he was constantly praying. Uh, in the he even unrolls his pass at some point to say, right, yes. how could I have done this? Look at what right. a and devout guy I am. When, when he's, when he's, uh, when, when the verdict is, when the guilty verdict is announced, he unravels his pass and says, you know, the, you know, these, these pass prove that I could never commit such a crime. Um, and in the murder pamphlets, there are, there are drawings of him, uh, with tefillin on, uh, you know, praying in his jail cell. And they're probably the first images that Americans ever saw of Jews wearing tefillin. Uh, you know, it, it's such, and it, it, it's it's really it's a very the images are very strange. Is it safe to say that this trial was sort of analogous to to OJ's in terms of public yes, this spectacle? Was, absolutely, this was this was the Jewish OJ OJ trial of the eighteen seventies. In fact, Abraham Kahn, who was the uh, editor of the Forwards, the largest Yiddish newspaper in history. Um, in his memoirs, uh, he uh, wrote that when he arrived in the United States in um, in 1881, uh, you know, five years after this took place, people were still talking about the trial. Uh, mm. And and in a retrospective in in the Forwards in 1910 about the history of Jew of Jewish settlement on the Lower East Side, it notes the Pesach Rubenstein case as one of the most significant episodes in the history of of that neighborhood. To take that analogy further, if if the OJ trial, really at the heart of OJ trial, the OJ trial was 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 race. Was the heart of this trial all about anti-Semitism? And yeah, I don't think the heart of the trial trial is is or the 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 major issue is anti-Semitism. Um, I think that uh, Pesach Rubenstein, because of the way he looked, was considered exotic. Uh, that's why there's so many images of him, uh, and that's why there's so much that's why so much ink was spilled about it. Um, you know, one of the interesting aspects of it is the, the you know the the majority of the Jew, of Jews in the country at the time uh, were of German extraction, and what they attempted to do was they attempted to uh, claim that uh, uh, there was something very strange and wrong about Polish Jews. So you see articles in the press press where where uh, you know Jewish leaders are quoted as saying, um, you know the these Polish Jews are nothing like us. You know, we have nothing to do with them. They're very primitive and, and uncivilized, and, and that's why they do things like this. As a Polish Jew, I can definitively say he, they were absolutely correct. <laughs> yes, we're, we're, we're very uncivilized. Well, it actually just sounds like it was shining a light on a subculture that had kind of been hiding in the shadows and getting on with its business at that point. There weren't enough Jews. Understandably, they didn't want to call attention to themselves when you're trying to assimilate in a new culture. Right. And this made every, this kind of cracked it wide open. Right. And the the exoticism of it is really that's really fascinating. Like you know, a song was written about Rubenstein. My name is Pesach Rubenstein. Um, you know, it this gets mentioned in a in an anthology of uh, of songs from the eighteen seventies. You know, unfortunately, the lyrics and music are not extant. Otherwise, you know, a great you could produce a great musical about this story. What do you think the impact of the story was in terms of in terms of how Jews viewed themselves? I mean, uh, the fact that that you know your research seems to suggest that Jews 
to a certain extent, buried the story. Do you think they buried the story or do you think they just didn't choose to sensationalize it? Well, I think, you know, they didn't choose. To, I mean, they, the Jews didn't really have a significant press of their own at the time. Uh, so there wasn't English language. We, we weren't uh, running the New York Times yet. No, that's exactly true. Um, yeah. But there was there was an English language there were English language Jewish newspapers that um, you know wrote almost nothing about the story because they considered it to be a huge embarrassment. Uh, so they they pretty much left it alone. Uh, the Yiddish paper uh, that existed, on the other hand, um, wrote about it pretty extensively. They weren't you know they weren't shy about publishing images. Uh, you know. In part, I think, because uh, a Yiddish newspaper can only be read by Yiddish speakers. There was nothing, you know, to expose to the to the world at large. Uh, and as time went by, I think, you know, the episode was forgotten. Um, uh, people, you know, historians who, in theory, should have written about it didn't, uh, which I do find surprising, uh, considering the, you know, the, the quantity of, of, of writing that occurred at the time. Uh, but it's, um, you know, it's one of those episodes where, you know, Jews are, are, are this, you know, sort of small minority that, um, has often had difficulty, uh, assimilating and, uh, finding acceptance. And, you know, during these periods where they see themselves as marginal, they, they, they don't want to bring out something that, uh, can possibly affect them in a negative, negative way. So, uh, the story was really much, you know, avoided. I guess, really until now. Well, and thank you, Eddie Portnoy, for uh, unearthing it for us. And when is... So Eddie when is... Portnoy, bad for the Jews. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's what my mother says. <laughs> <laughs> when is the book coming out? And what other murderers can we, and psychopaths can we look forward to hearing about? Oh, so um, the book comes out in October. Mm-hmm. And I have murderers, abortionists, drunks, um, Pimps, prostitutes, um, beauty queens, wrestlers, all, <laughs> all kinds of, all kinds of uh, uh, seemingly strange phenomena in Jewish life. You know, the reality is, is that it's, it's, it's not really that strange. You know, Jews do everything. Uh, so, you know, the idea that, that, that it's anomalous now is, uh, is not really accurate. A lot of it is, you know, some of it is completely, that could have happened you know, today. Uh, and then some of it, uh, you know, you know, for some of it wouldn't be, it wouldn't really be possible, but like there, you know, there's some story that like there's a, a rabbi who, who's a bigamist. Um, uh, there are, uh, you know, scenes from, uh, uh, the rabbinical court where, where, you know, violence and brawls are constantly breaking out. Um, you know, I like to say that the, that the book is, uh, where uh, Isaac Bashevis Singer meets Jerry Springer. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good quote. Singer versus Springer. Yeah, from Singer to Springer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, fantastic. And it, the the book is called. called it's called ba- It's called Bad Rabbi and other oh. strange but true stories from the Yiddish press. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Eddie Portnoy. You were a, right, thank, uh, a legend thank and you a scholar. Guys. I think what I liked about this episode is that we talked about some of the dirty laundry that that a lot of Jews don't like to mention are in their closet, a.k.a. Son of Sam. We could have thrown him in here. Oh, yeah. Um, and Pesach Rubenstein. And Pesach. I'm also pretty sure I'm going to name my first son Pesach Rubenstein now. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to rebrand that. Um, Eddie's book comes out October 2017. Yep, exactly. Or came out came, October 2017. Yeah, Eddie's book was out October 2017, and uh, you should check it out. It's from Stanford University Press. Great cover. Are you familiar with the photos of Roman Vishniak? Did those photos color your impression of pre-war European Jewish life? Are you planning on... <laughs> planning on murdering your, your brother or sister? Or <laughs> a young woman who a, a does... Woman who, uh, yeah, it was a young girl. Oh, yeah. Wh- it? Are you planning on murdering <laughs> someone? Who turns you down? <laughs> who, are, are you, you impregnating? Are you planning on murdering a young female servant who, in your home? who you've, Also a distant cousin, I believe. A cousin, yeah. Who you've impregnated just because you're a mentally diminished middle-aged man? 
Yeah. Well, if Write so. Write to us at the Kibbutz. Let us know. <laughs> uh, kibbutz Pod. And we will definitely be reading that one on the air. <laughs> yes. So. Please, if you have any um, suicide, homicidal ideations like Pesach Rubenstein, write to us at kibitzpod, K-I-B-I-T-I-Z, pod, at gmail.com. And let us know what you think about the show. And uh, We'll read your homicidal ideations on the air. That's right, on a future episode. <laughs> that's it for the kibitz. Thanks to our guests, Maya Benton and Eddie Portnoy. For more about them, please check out our website at kibitzpod.com. We've also added some great photos from the Roman Vishniak archive on the site, so check those out. If you like the episode, please review us on iTunes and tell your friends via public forums such as social media. Yeah, people like, call it Twitter. Like, a, like a Facebook kind of situation? There's an Instagram thing people use. Uh, what about a Twitter? Is that a thing? It's a thing. Are the kids using as of this, As of this recording, it's still a thing. <laughs> I, yeah, Broadcast right. this to Who your knows? pals. This episode was produced and edited by me, Dan Crane. Special thanks to my co-host, Jessica Chaffin, as well as Adam Sachs, Sarah DeLeo, David Jargowski, Francine Hermelin, and Reboot. Our main theme is courtesy of Nunon Plu. And as my great-grandmother used to say, That's the way it is in a small town with a large population. Thanks, thanks for, for listening, listening to, to The, the Kibbits. Kibbits.